Well, um, good morning. A beautiful, uh, rare, clear uh, day this morning. I think that's an answer to prayer. Um, if you notice, there's not many lights on in here, so we were praying that it would be a, a bright day. Um, we've had some old, this building's like 1937 or something like that, and uh, I think those lights are obviously from that time as well. So we, John was actually up in the ceiling, and you know we're not electricians because we were trying to fix lights and replace fuses and stuff like that and ended up with less lighting than when we started. <laughs> so, um, yeah, not sure uh, how all that worked out. But so we are working on lighting in here and, and hopefully it, it'll be sunny next week if we haven't figured it out by then. But um, thanks for being patient, yeah, on that. Um, so uh, here we are in uh, Acts 14. If uh, you're visiting with us, we've been going through the uh, book of Acts really since uh, after Easter last year. We obviously have taken some breaks over the summer. Uh, we did a, a series on uh, the five solas and, and then with Advent. And so we're picking it back up where we left off uh, on Acts 14. Um, today's Epiphany Sunday, if you really follow a church calendar, which is really uh, the Sunday that we mark the Magi coming in to visit uh, Jesus. And really by extension of that then, it's we're celebrating the physical manifestation of Jesus to the Gentiles. Uh, these are non-Jews that come to, to visit Jesus. This isn't part of the text. This is bonus material this morning. So, um, But, it, but it's, it, it's great this morning because the book of Acts is that story. It's the story of the message of Jesus um, moving out from Jerusalem, out into the Gentile world. And so um, we pick up our, our, uh, the narrative of the book of Acts. We have uh, Paul and Barnabas, and they are on, they've been sent out from the church in Antioch, in Syria. It gets confusing. There's a couple different Antiochs, Antioch in Syria. And they're heading toward Antioch, uh, Pisidia. And you have these different towns and cities that they are, are visiting along the way uh, that, is, that is here. Um, we've entitled this series Living as Resurrection People because it is the power of a resurrected Christ that Paul and Barnabas go with. They go with the spirit of a resurrected Jesus, preaching the good news of the resurrection um, to the people that they are meeting. And so what is, uh, we've been looking at us then in light of that, uh, as you and I continue this story of uh, the narrative of, of Jesus going out to the uttermost parts of the world. Um, what does it look like for us to live as those same kinds of people? Uh, yes, we're not apostles uh, in, in that kind of sense of, of the word at all, but we are tasked with the same task that Paul and Barnabas had, to go and make disciples. And so here we have them um, going on this journey. And we're going to really see our theme this morning is going to be uh, really how they endure and persevere, endurance and perseverance, really in face of persecution, uh, of suffering, um, in trials in the faith. Um, one of the towns that, the, that we see them in is Lystra. Um, Lystra is where Timothy is from. Um, so Timothy will come on the scene later on here. Um, but Timothy, a, a young apprentice of Paul, a young pastor that Paul trains. And these are, are his words when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. Uh, Paul writing to him says, you however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. These persecutions that he endured that he just is writing to Timothy is what we're looking at today. 
Um, Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Um, this is Paul writing to Timothy. He's like, you saw me, you witnessed these, these uh, sufferings, these trials that I went through, and yet in all of them, the Lord delivered me. He rescued me in all of these. And, and in writing to his apprentice, he says, listen, all who live a godly life, all who are gonna pursue Jesus, all who will follow him, all who will live in obedience to Jesus Christ will face persecutions. We will face trials. We will face sufferings. Um, it's just part of the deal. Um, and so we shouldn't um, be surprised when these things happen um, to us. Um, and so Paul, uh, we're going to look at the, his example today um, that we can learn from that. Um, because like Timothy, we too should be encouraged to endure for the sake of the gospel like Paul, but also by the faithfulness, uh, by the faithful help of the Lord who empowered who strengthened and who rescued the Apostle Paul from every trial. It's the same message that we go with, that Paul went with, but it's with the same God that we go with, uh, that Paul went with it, uh, as well. So we're just gonna walk through the text as, as we typically do and um, see what the Lord would have for us through his spirit uh, today for us. So we first come to Iconium. Um, so let's look at the events that happened here um, in the first seven verses. Iconium is uh, really this we see that Paul sails from Cyprus to what is now modern-day Turkey um, and sails into the port of Atalia, uh, which is modern-day Antalya. Um, that's actually where my family holidayed this last summer. Um, we have friends that are church planters there, Turkish uh, pastors who are planting churches there. Um, and so from Antalya, the harbor where Paul, would have, Paul and Barnabas sailed into, to get to Iconium is about a 170-mile walk. Um, and it's really going through the Sultan Mountains that are there. So um, having been there recently and seen the terrain, um, I can't imagine making that journey. They're big mountains. They're not like uh, our version of mountains in Ireland. They're like proper mountains um, covered with snow. And these guys are making this, this journey. So it's perseverance just to, just to do what they're, they've been asked to do, um, just to make that trip, never mind all the physical things that uh, people and humans and stuff are attacking with. It's just a, it's a pretty physical uh, journey that they've been tasked to go on. Um, but we see in Iconium, they persevere and they persevere with courage. Um, so we see it starts off, they entered into together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This is Paul's kind of modus operandi. When he goes uh, to a new city, he'll, he generally, if there is one, will find the synagogue. He'll, he'll go to his fellow Jews. Um, and, and there is where he begins. He begins um, to share the good news of Jesus. He begins to teach them what the Old Testament is actually uh, referring to. But this took great courage and perseverance for Paul to do this. This was his strategy but to be honest, I probably would have called it a bad strategy and given up because every time he goes to a synagogue, they uh, want to kill him. <laughs> so you're like, hey, new city, where should we go? Let's go to the place they always want to kill me um, and let's start there. And uh, so Paul was, had to have some perseverance just with courage. He, he goes to the synagogue, but he was just attacked in the last one that he was at. You remember, this is... Paul going to the Jews of, of whom he says he's got great credibility. Um, but he was the one on behalf of the Jews, 
on behalf of the high priest, going and hunting down, moving from city to city, and, in, and imprisoning the Christians. And now, he's doing the exact opposite. He's going from city to city, making disciples, and seeing new Christians formed. And so, he's a traitor to these people. Um, the Jewish leaders see him as a traitor. Um, he's an enemy of the state, and so they are hunting him. The, the hunter has become the hunted. And so, here he is going right into the kind of lion's den, as it were. Um, but he's, he's doing that because these are the people who would have some kind of framework of expecting a Messiah. They would have a framework of the prophets. They would have a framework of things like repentance and, and uh, redemption and, and all of these different things. He was committed to reaching the Gentiles. He knew that was his mission. But he always started with the Jews. He, he would actually say, the gospel is to first the Jews and then the Gentiles. And I don't think he's just talking about the chronological order in which it happens. I think he's actually meaning when he goes to a new city, he will start with the Jews. The, this, the God's chosen people, he will go. He will give them the good news of the gospel, hoping that they would respond and move them to the Gentiles. So he starts with them. But he needed a Holy Spirit enabling courage to be able to do that. Um, I, I just probably, if it were me in, in a real pragmatic kind of way, laying out your church planting strategy, wouldn't go and start with the people who are looking for me. I wouldn't go and start with the people who are trying to shut down my church planting operations. I wouldn't go right into the, to the people uh, who, who are going to oppose me and be like, by the way, I'm here and uh, we're here to kind of set up shop. Anybody want to join us on the endeavor? Um, but yet that's what he does. He's committed to the good news. He's committed to God's people, and he understands the great scope of redemptive history and the part that he's playing in that. But he needed courage to be able to do it, and that courage came from uh, the Holy Spirit. We also see in this really just his perseverance on relying on the Lord. Um, In verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against them, against the brothers. So they remained for a long time. That's funny, right? Here he is just relying on the Lord. These guys come in, stir up trouble, poison. These are the enemies against them. What should we do? Let's stay longer. Um, Let's stay for a long time. And speak boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. That's important. We'll come back to that in a minute. Granting signs and wonders to be done by their hand. So the Lord is granting them power to do miracles and signs and wonders. Validating the message and the messengers. We talked about that at great length in the early part of Acts. Um, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. So there's this great number of people who believed. Their witness is effective. Um, The Lord is is blessing them. There's fruit that's happening, and there's a great number who believed. But some also reject them, oppose them. Um, The the Jews come in and poison their minds. Um, Their enemies are working against them. And this is the way it normally is. An effective witness is usually an opposed witness. Um, If you will speak out boldly um, and confidently or just honestly uh, about Christ, about what he has done in your life, um, that will be effective, but it will also draw opposition. Um, uh, This isn't uh, just an earthly kind of uh, fleshly battle we're in. This isn't just a battle of ideas. This isn't going in to talk about capitalism versus socialism and, and let's, you know, talk about the merits of this. And this isn't just a, a battle of ideas. This is a spiritual battle. There's a, an otherworldly element to this um, that is taking place. And so this isn't just uh, 
uh, of people who, who disagree with the message that's being happened. There is spiritual warfare that is taking place. And this is what um, Paul is entering into, into this spiritual battle. But he's not intimidated. He's relying on the Lord. They stay for, uh, it says a long time. If you kind of work out the timeline through the book of Acts and, and as he's writing letters, uh, they stayed for several months. And we don't know how long exactly, but for several months they're there. And they're upsetting his opponents. Now, what, what was it that so upset the Jews? What was it that was, that was making them so angry and so mad? Um, was it, oh, this is a rival church that he's trying to start and we might lose? Uh, no, he was actually in the synagogue coming as a Jew. But what really upset his opponents was um, his message, this word of grace that he brought. He'll explain this if you turn to Acts chapter 20, um, a little further ahead, Acts 20, 24. Um, he describes the message that he comes, he comes with. Acts 20, 24, he says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. That's gonna be obvious as we see what he's willing to risk. Um, I, uh, as, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. So the Lord has given him a ministry. He wants to finish the task that, that Jesus himself gave him. What was that? That I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It was this message of grace that so infuriated them. Um, if you look at Galatians chapter one, um, this area that he's operating is, is in Galatia. Uh, and later he will write to these churches and say, um, uh, in verse six, Galatians 1, six, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What is it they're trying to distort? What is it that they're opposing? They're opposing the grace message that Paul came with. They wanted to kill Paul because he preached grace. Um, and this is what the message of grace does. This is why Jesus says uh, that, that it's like a, a, a sword that will divide and will even divide families, brother against brother. Because grace and the human response to that is one of two things. It either produces great relief and joy in your life. Great relief and joy that it's not on my merit that I can't earn this. That it's strictly God's mercy and his grace that he pours out on me. And all I have to do is receive that. And it just is this weight lifted off me. And what good news is that? Or it does the opposite. And it produces anger and hostility. Because in, in that, we admit that we are useless and weak and cannot earn our own. Then the default uh, position of the human heart is one of, uh, of self-righteousness. It's works-based self-righteousness. I want to earn my own standing. I want the credit for that. I don't want to be seen as weak. I want to be able to do it myself. But that's not the message of the cross. That's not the message. If you could earn your own salvation, it makes a mockery of Jesus coming and having to die for us. And so the Jews, with all of their laws, of which they had many, um, and added to, um, prided themselves, were able to separate themselves against the Gentiles because look at how we're able to keep the law. This is us. We are the same. 
Our hearts are bent towards legalism, regardless of how religious you are. No one is qualified for God's mercy and kindness. And yet that is the message that Paul is tasked with from Jesus himself. This is how he'll put it in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, as he's describing. He says this, he, is, he, speaking of Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So this is the gospel of grace. God delivers us from the domain of darkness. We're enslaved. We're in the dark, blind, unable. And he comes in and he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's God who does the transferring. It's Jesus who, it's Jesus who is the, the redeemer. He's the one who forgives. It's nothing of our own. Um. The best way I can think of actually like a, a human experience of this, I was still living in, uh, in America at the time. My grandmother passed away. This is, I don't know, maybe 14, 15 years ago now. And so I was flying back for the funeral and um, I flew from Detroit where I was living at the time to Atlanta and then Atlanta into London Heathrow um, where I would meet um, my, the rest of my family that were flying in and then we would fly to Belfast um, together from there. And, uh, and I got to Atlanta, and, uh, you know, it's a funeral, so I can't miss a flight. I can't get bumped. I can't, none of that, right? And, man, it's a, f- you get to the gate, and you just know. You're like, man, this is a full flight. And sure enough, uh, well, passenger Lucas Parks, please make himself known. And I'm like, here we go. So I'm going up ready for a fight. I'm not getting bumped. I'm like, I'm, I got my sob story, my grandmother's funeral. I got the whole thing ready to go. And sure enough, they're like, hey, this is a really full flight, um, and, uh, you know, we don't have any extra seating. And there's a mother and a child who aren't able to sit together. And I'm like, oh, great. I got to be the bad guy who's like, screw those guys. I'm getting on the plane, right? And, uh, so, and, and so I can just feel my, like, nervousness inside. And what am I going to do and all of that? And she's like, so we were wondering if you wouldn't mind sitting in first class. And, uh, and I, was, I was like, what? And, uh, you know, because that's the only seat we have available, would you, would you, be, would you mind? And I was like, well, that's the dumbest question anybody's ever asked anyone. <laughs> of course I object. Um, so I got to sit in first class, and I thought, they'll let me sit up here, but that's all they're going to, they're not going to give me, like, the full first class treatment. And, man, I was wrong. So I got to board first, and I had, like, warm nuts and some champagne or I don't know what it was and we had like no one else had even boarded yet right and and uh, everybody else has to walk through first class and I feel guilt I'm like I'm just like you honestly really you know like (laughs) and then after a while you're like hey close that curtain back there those guys back there you know and I'm reclining and you get like proper silverware and a menu and right now I didn't pay for that I didn't deserve that I, I like they just gave it to me um to, to upgrade, because now since then, you get these flights. Hey, would you like to upgrade? And you're like, oh, I'll, I'll see. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. It's, you know, 15, you know, 1,500 pounds or whatever it is, just upgrade. But I just got all of that. And then I got to the Heathrow Airport, and then there's the first class lounge. And I'm like, there's no way, but I'm going to try. And, uh, and so they're like, oh, yeah, Mr. Parks, come on in. Um, nicest shower I've ever been in in my life. And a breakfast buffet, like all of that. And I didn't, have to, I didn't do anything. I didn't ask for it. It wasn't, it was just all unmerited um, kind of grace. Now, I imagine though, if you're the other first class passengers who have paid all that money and you've earned and you've done all that or you've saved air miles or however it works, I don't know. 
Uh, and then here comes me, this scrub that sits next to you, and he didn't have to do jack. You're like, well, that's not fair. I earned my right up here. Thank you very much. But this is grace, isn't it? And this is why Paul um, was pursued by the uh, first-class elites who was just letting all these scrubby Gentiles into first class. They didn't have to do anything. And so Paul and Barnabas are, are preaching, but they're relying on not just the message of God's grace, they're actually relying on the Lord's grace to do so. And this is, this is classic Jesus. Jesus uses people who depend on him. Over and over again, Paul will witness to the fact that it was Jesus who rescued him. It was Jesus, as he even tells Timothy, you saw all this stuff happen, and yet the Lord rescued me time and time again. He was just relying on the Lord. I'm just gonna go, I'll be obedient. I might get stoned, I might, like, who knows? I'm just gonna rely on the Lord and see what happens. It's this grace-enabled grit it was a, a, a stick-to-itiveness, a determination, but it's a determination and grit that's enabled by God's grace. This boldness came from Jesus, right? He's, a, he's the message, I just wanna finish the task, the task that Jesus himself gave me. And it's the same task that you and I have been given. But Jesus promised us that he would be with us even to the end of the age. He would be with us as we go and live on mission as we make disciples. And so we see the gospel, in this case, unify people who it shouldn't and divide people who it shouldn't. Um, it united Jews and Gentiles together in opposition to Paul. I mean, Jews didn't want to do anything with the Gentiles. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't do any of that. But if it came to like, hey, if you can help us out, get rid of this guy, now all of a sudden we're like BFFs. They would unite together in opposition. And yet Paul and Barnabas uh, were up for the task. They stayed. They made disciples, enabled um, by the grace that God had given them. In verse 5 then, um, they start to hear of a plot um, to stone them. And so they have perseverance. They persevere with courage. Uh, they persevere relying on the Lord. But they also persevere with prudence and wisdom. It's prudence and wisdom as well. Um, it says, when an attempt had been made um, to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derby um, and the surrounding kind of country that's there. Uh, Lystra was about 20 miles away. Derby's about 60 miles away. These are all part of uh, uh, the province of Galatia. So here they're brave, um, but they're also not recklessly stupid. Um, when they find out there's a plot to kill them, they're like, okay. Maybe the Lord is moving us along now. And they live to preach another day. And sometimes you'll see them stand their ground. Um, and other times they relocate. Um, they're prudent in that. They're seeking the Lord's guidance and wisdom in that. Um, Paul, as you even read through, he's like, hey, we tried to, we tried to take a, a right turn to go to Asia. And the Lord just said, nah, I'm not, I don't want you to do that. I want you to go this way instead. Um, and there's a, a time we'll see later where they don't know where to go. They're a little bit unsure. And then God in a vision says, I want you to go to Macedonia. God is directing their paths. And so with prudence and with wisdom, um, they're seeking him. They're relying on him, allowing him to guide and direct um, where they are to go. 
And in that, as they go into the surrounding country, um, they continue to preach the gospel. They're on mission. They're on task. Wherever it is that they may be going, it's the Lord who's guiding and directing them. Um, But they are single-focused. They are single-minded in what they are to do. And so here we move on then to see them in Lystra and Derby. Lystra is different than Iconium. Um, it's it's a, a, a small town. It's not a major city. It's, it's pagan. There is no um, synagogue there. Um, so they're dealing kind of with pagans um, that are here. And so we see them really, the example that we have is to persevere in faithful and flexible evangelism. Um, they're flexible. They've moved now to a different uh, town. And we see them really start to be uh, flexible in that. How they dealt with the Jews, how they approached uh, witnessing to them is completely different than how they do it with kind of uh, Greek pagans. With, G- uh, with the Jews, Paul appeals to the Old Testament. He appeals to their knowledge, their familiarity with the prophets, uh, with the law. But here with the pagans, he appeals to what they can see in creation. He, he finds common ground with them. And Paul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, um, starts to work. Here we see a man, and the, the Lord allows Paul with a spiritual uh, set of, of glasses on to see the condition of the man's spiritual life. He's able to see that the man has faith, a saving faith. And in that, then, he heals him. He, a man who hasn't walked before, who's crippled from birth, he commands him, seeing it, he had faith to be made well, commands him to stand upright on his feet. And he springs up and begins walking. This is amazing. Paul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gives them a sign. This sign of the already and the not yet kingdom. The kingdom is here. It's at hand. It's tangible. It's not just, it's not just a, a hope for the a future. It is that, but it's not just that. It's now. It's present. It isn't in its full fruition yet. We're waiting on the second advent of Christ. But it's this sign, this authenticity, this sign of authentication. And in some ways, you can't blame the pagans in their response, right? They think that they're gods. Um, and so they think that Paul is Hermes, this, who is the god of oratory. And Barnabas then must be Zeus. Um, and, and they start to um, deify them. Now, there's some of, the, some of the reason for this. There was a local legend from one of their poets Um, called Ovid, and there was basically a legend that the gods did come in human form and that thousands of people rejected them, turned them away, wouldn't give them hospitality at all until there was an older couple who welcomed them in. And then the gods reveal themselves and in a flood destroy everybody who rejected them and um, these people who welcomed them in, their houses magically turned into a big uh, palatial temple and they get to be priests that work for the gods, right? So it might just be the fact of like, Let's not make this mistake again. <laughs> and, uh, and so they're ready to like, let's do this. And they're bringing out flowers and garlands and uh, they're ready to sacrifice a bull and, and, and all of this sorts of stuff. And uh, it seems like maybe Paul and Barnabas didn't exactly know what was happening at first. Uh, they're speaking in a different language and they're kind of, uh, it lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Um, but it, it doesn't take long before they start to figure it out. They're bringing in a sacrifice. They're bringing in these offerings and different things like this. And Paul and Barnabas rush to stop uh, this sacrifice to them, this treating them like God. So much so to get their attention, they rend their garments. They they tear their garments. 
um, which was a sign of mourning or distress or of protest of blasphemy, right? We see people rendering rending their garments uh, throughout the, the scripture in, in these various ways. And they urge them to stop their false worship. They, they're deflecting the glory that is aimed at them to who it belongs to rightly. We're not gods. He says, we are, we are just like you. We are of the same nature. We are just men. And they deflect the glory where it's meant to be. Um, Man, how many celebrity pastors in our kind of time frame could learn from this? It's an easy place to start, isn't it? Like we, we do the same kind of things. It's so easy to like look at these people and go, oh, what silly pagans. And yet we do this all the time. We take spiritual leaders and deify them somehow as if they're above, as if they're different from us. And we're not. Just because I stand up here and, and the Lord has set us aside um, to do this vocationally, I am the same nature as you right? Same, same sinful nature, same, same temptation. And just like you, I'm not like Jesus who was without sin. We're not. You think of Herod who would love this, right? Herod's like, yeah. Yeah, Zeus? Who, who, Zeus? Yeah, yeah, I'm Zeus. Hermes, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Let's do that palace thing. But faithful Christians understand that it's only God to be worshiped. We want, to, we want to have a culture of honor, yes. Right? Paul says, listen, if, if, if there are church leaders who are, uh, who are doing this vocationally uh, and are equipping everybody else, yeah, they should be paid. They should be worth honor. And, and those that are in word ministry, double honor. But there's a difference between honoring and worshiping. And so a culture of honor, yes. We want to do that with, with uh, those of you that serve and, uh, as well. But a culture of worshiping leaders, no. No. And so Paul's sermon to them takes on this theme of nature and the work of the living God. Paul is preaching um, to polytheistic people. They had multiple gods, Zeus, Hermes, whatever it may be. And so here he enters into really the beginning point of them. With Jews, he can go straight to Jesus. This is the Messiah you're looking for. This is what the prophet Isaiah said. He can come straight to the personal work of Jesus. With these people, he's got to back that up a little bit. Because if he goes straight to Jesus, they go, oh yeah, Jesus. And he's just another God amongst many. So he comes back to the very beginning of creation. This is a God who created all things. A God who is above all other gods. Um, Paul will continue to describe uh, these things. In Romans chapter 1, that he describes the human condition. And again, so easy for us to be arrogant as kind of modern, uh, evolved, civilized people and look at pagans, uh, uh, old-time pagans, and just go, oh, these guys were so ridiculous. And yet we are the same as them, same human nature. We just do it in much more sophisticated ways. Well, sophisticated to us. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling 
mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is, this is who we are as people. We ignore the obvious of God and we come up with new human, uh, made by human hands, human ideas of who God is. And so he starts with the God who created all things, the God who sends rain, the God who provides, one God over all. Um, this is similar, isn't it, when Peter even comes to Cornelius. Remember Peter comes to Cornelius and, and Cornelius falls down on his knees and starts to worship Peter and Peter's like, what are you doing? He's like, get up, I'm just a man. And both Peter and Paul emphasize the insanity of worshiping humans. And yet that's our nature. We do it all the time. We will exchange the glory of God and worship man-made stuff or, 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 or men, humans. We exchange a real savior, a one who can actually rescue, a one who can actually um, be all that we need. We reject that, go chasing after kind of functional saviors of our own. How many times have we done this? And that looks different for everyone, right? We're all chasing what we think is our functional savior. What is that thing that will provide me meaning? What is the thing that will provide me happiness? What is the thing that if I just had that, oh, everything would be, everything else would just kind of fall into place. We do it all the time. We chase after careers. We chase after a, a meaningful other in our life. Countless people who are once following Jesus and then eventually stop doing that because of a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend who doesn't follow Jesus. But I need that other person in my life. I'm not gonna be fulfilled. How will I have kids? How will I have a family? I don't wanna be alone my whole life. And instead of trusting Jesus to provide all those things, rejects that, follows after this other significant other. And they've really just kind of walked away and abandoned a faith for temporary kind of satisfaction and joy. But it never lasts. Even if that relationship lasts your whole life, it always leaves us wanting what God could provide. People always have a disproportionate influence or, or command our obedience or our allegiance over God. That's the condition of our human hearts. We compromise on God's standards for the approval of others. And it leads us away from a life of flourishing. And, and so we look at these pagans and go, oh, look at these guys sacrificing for these false gods. But we, all, we make all kinds of sacrifices in our life for false gods. We give up all kinds of stuff for false gods, thinking that it will provide. If we worship those things, It'll give me meaning. It will give me joy. And it all, those things always fail. And so what's the right response? The right response is exactly what Paul uh, commands of them. Look in verse 15. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth. His call is for repentance. Turn from these vain things to a living God. Turn from these things that can't offer you and provide, that can't save you, and turn, from, turn to the one who can. 
the one who actually created you in the first place, the one who's designed you in the first place, and calls their gods worthless. You're like, man, that's offensive. You can call these like people's gods worthless. And, and yeah, it, it is kind of offensive, isn't it? It's an offensive message to say, hey, that thing that you've been chasing, that career that you think is going to finally put you in place, that other person, that other whatever it is, that certain amount of money in your bank account, by the way, the thing that you've dedicated your whole life chasing, those things are worthless. You're like, hey, <laughs> back up. And it is, it's just the offense of, of the gospel. And yet there's so much freedom in that, isn't there? Repentance is good news. He actually says that. He's like, we bring you good news. Repent from your worthless stuff and turn to the, turn to the one thing that can provide. Now, why is that good news if it's so offensive? It's good news because your objects of worship can't save you. They can't fulfill you. They can't give your life meaning and purpose and direction. They can't give you joy in the midst of suffering. They might give you joy in the midst when everything's going great. What happens when that person leaves you or dies or gets ill? Jesus sets us free from all of this slavery to sin because all of these idols, even the things that are good, we always think of idols as sinful kind of evil things. And sometimes they are, but sometimes they're just good things that are disordered, disprioritized affections. We give them the prominence and place of, in our heart, our affections of our heart in place of God. They jump on top of the queue. The gospel is repenting. It's, it's reordering our affections so that they're in the right place. Jesus sets us free from how our idols enslave us in that way to a life of flourishing. And so you don't have to do the math. Um, if you remember, I don't know if you watched the series Friends or not, but there was a series, there was this episode, sorry, I can relate everything to a Friends episode, it's from Gen X, um, but there's this episode where Rachel's dating this like much younger guy, and, uh, and her and all of her friends are like turning 30, and do you remember, if they're all sat around the table, and she's like trying to do the math. Like, if I break up with him now, which she knows she probably needs to do, then it might take me two more years to get a guy. It'd probably be another two years if we date. And then I'd want to probably be married for two years before I have kids. And, like, she's doing the math. She's like, if I find a boyfriend right now, I'll be 36 when my dreams all kind of happen. And it's like this pressure's on the clock. But the good news of the gospel is you're free from all of that. Is it wrong to want a spouse? Is it wrong to want? No. But those things are gifts that God gives us. They're not things, they're not functional saviors that are going to uh, provide everything in your life that you think they will. And so conversion requires us abandoning our functional saviors and embracing the real savior, Jesus. And this is exactly uh, what Paul is calling them to do. Paul emphasizes God and creator and then God's goodness and providence in them, right? He says, he did good by providing fruitful seasons to you, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's the good news that Jesus satisfies our hearts. The satisfaction that you get in these temporary earthly things, food, seasons of abundance. Um, he says they're good. They come from God's providential hand. These are the good things, God's common grace, right? It doesn't just rain and, uh, on good people to make a harvest, it rains on the good and the bad. There's common grace that God gives, but it's recognizing 
that these are gifts from, the, from his hand. And so are we aware? Are we aware, like these people who weren't, that Paul's trying to gather their attention to the goodness of God's providence? Are you aware of God's providence in your life and the goodness that's there? Man, it's so good to take stock of that. We have times of Thanksgiving set aside, but just taking stock in the everyday, the good meal that you had. I had a great meal provided last night for me. Laughter with friends, our kids, our families, you know, when they're behaving themselves. Rest, our work, all of these things that we can take stock and be aware of God's goodness and providence in our life. This is the life that God has called us into. This is really the life that we have, a life of worship, a life of recognizing, a life of rightly ordered affections that then we go out with the good news of this. We are experiencing the goodness of God, his flourishing in our life through good and bad. And so Paul finds this connection point with these kind of pagans that's different than the connection point with the Jews. And it's the same with us, right? When, when we as Christians are sharing our faith, we establish a point of contact with people. Um, we just did a whole kind of uh, equipping in our Village Academy on evangelism, so I'm not gonna rehash all of that, but, but so often when we think of sharing our faith, we think of like answers. Okay, I have to have all these theological answers to questions that are there. Uh, and certainly, eventually, those things are helpful, and, and yes, but that's not often where we start. We, we establish a point of contact with people in what we have in common. Most people have a hunger for love and community. Most people are searching for freedom. Most people need to be rid of shame and guilt. Most people are on a quest to find meaning, long for significance, thirst for satisfaction and joy. Most people have an attraction to beauty and creation have a love for creativity and innovation. All of these provide pathways, these trailheads that can start us down these roads with people. These are all pathways that are also part of the storyline of Scripture, are they not? And so whatever path we start on, they join into the storyline of of Scripture and they end with Jesus. So here we don't get all of the him getting to the end um, mainly because they're getting ready to stone him and he might have got cut off. But uh, we know as, as, as he preaches in other places, that he, that's where he gets. And so the Jews eventually hunt Paul down from Antioch and Iconium. And again, they poison the minds of the people. And it goes from his sermon, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to him. So they're like, we're not gods. Don't worship us. This is the one true God. And then in verse 19, but Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. You're like, what just happened? <laughs> like, they're getting ready to make this guy call him a god, and then they're like, ah, never mind, let's kill him. Now, for me, that's Palm Sunday. Is that not, like, everyone's like, Hosanna, king of the kings, king of Jews, and they're like, crucify him. And they kill him. And so it's not a surprise that when we follow Jesus, things start to be similar. And so here we see this perseverance then through physical trials. But they persevere through physical trials out of their love for the gospel. 
when Paul, in, when he's writing to the Galatians in 6.17, he actually says he bears uh, on his body the marks of Jesus. Paul's not being hyperbolic. He actually bore the marks that Jesus, like he's actually bearing scars. I don't know what it's like to be stoned so much that people think you're dead, but I'm guessing that comes with some bruises and some cuts and some scrapes possibly broken ribs. And then he tells, he tells us that we must enter the kingdom through many tribulations. We must enter the kingdom. Look at, uh, in 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 28. Paul is uh, speaking about his uh, trials that he went through. This is, this is what, at this time of writing, this is what he says. Paul's on these missionary journeys. This is just one of them that we see. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So he's whipped 39 times, five times. This has happened to him. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. This is what we see here. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. Like, that's terrifying. These are like terrifying things. We just kind of rattle them off as a list. But I'm like, I wouldn't want any one of those. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea. I'm like, wherever I go, like, dangers just fall. Like, he's just described everything. Dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Like there's all this outside threat, and then there's this internal anxiety that he bears, this concern for all these churches. There's this daily pressure. In the past, pastoral ministry, uh, certainly for Paul, um, like I, don't, I can't identify with any of that at all except that last part. Like, never been shipwrecked. No one's ever physically beaten me. Some sleepless nights, okay, sure, but like no physical threat. I've never been without food, obviously. Um, <laughs> right? Cold, but just the cold that we all experience living here. Like nothing... Well, there is this anxiety, there's this weightiness, isn't there? This weighty kind of calling um, of what the Lord is doing. In 2 Corinthians 4, um, 7 and 9, this is, uh, <laughs> now remember the list that I just read. Remember here he's just been stoned to death. And then this is, this is what Paul says. This is incredible. We think about enduring we think about um, relying on the Lord. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's us. We have this message that's been put in a container. We're the container of the message that God sends us out. But the, it's not a, a steel fortified armored truck that takes the message. It's a clay pot. And if you drop a clay pot, it's going to break. That's us. We're clay pots. Why? Why would God do it that way? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. 
persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That's incredible. Many times I've read that and you, you just kind of breeze through that. And then you look at the life, like Paul lived that life. He was crushed. He was afflicted, but he, was, he wasn't crushed. He stoned so much they thought and left him for dead. Maybe he was. I don't know. We're not given like the details. But the, his brothers come around him and he gets up and goes back into the city. Again, I might have gone somewhere else. I mean, eventually he does. Whether he was dead, God resurrected him. Whether they thought he was dead and kind of gave up. The power of God moves him forward. This is, this is us. This is whatever our struggles, whatever our afflictions are. It's our endurance, our perseverance in relying on the Lord. Whether that's physical struggles. right? None of us are probably um, battling that kind of like beatings and, and torture and things like that. But we all have physical, we have our physical struggles. We have sickness, we have disease, we have ailments, we have dying bodies. And we have the internal stuff that we carry around as well. Um, I've shared with some, uh, some of you uh, my own kind of struggles around just anxiety and some of that stuff, particularly this time of year um, with seasonal affective stuff and um, what keeps us going in the midst of that. Um, it's good to, to, there are practical things that we can do, and I'm trying to figure those out. Um, I'm actually going to be gone the last two weeks in January. Um, had some, actually we had a missional community in California. Um, so let me encourage you that are in missional communities, uh, the way they thought. Uh, Chris Lewis, if you remember, he came over. Um, they raised $45,000 for Acts 29 Ireland to give us an operational budget for the year. Um, part of that actually will be seed money to help us plant Village South. Um, so these people are invested already. But on top of that, one of their MCs raised a little bit of money and just said, hey, just take this and if, you, if there's an opportunity to bless a pastor or a project or whatever, like you just have freedom to do, to do whatever you want with that. Um, and so kind of knowing all of these sorts of things, uh, Chris is like, why don't you take this and get out from underneath the gray, wet blanket that is the Irish winter sky um, and, and just chose to kind of bless us in that. So, um, so I am, I'm going to do that um, the last, I'll be here next Sunday and then I'll be going the next two. But in the midst of all of that, those things are helpful. Um, we can have self-care, um, which is good and right. But ultimately, our foundation of what keeps us going is the same thing that, that kept Paul going. His love and affection for, gospel, for the gospel, his love and affection for Jesus. He knew what he had experienced. He had the answer from going from darkness to light, from death to life, of hope, of eternal hope, of a life that mattered, a life that, that, that wasn't just based on these temporal things that we were chasing. And he wanted others to know that. He had been given this task by Jesus himself and nothing was gonna stop him. 
And that has to be our foundation as well. And so we fan into flame, as Paul said, Timothy, fan into flame. Because fires go out and fires die and dim. We have to continually feed those things, which is why we need the Christian community that we're in. We see in his return trips and as we close, this perseverance by being devoted to the local church, right? They needed, he knew that these Christians would be persecuted like him. They, they were gonna need each other. They needed Christian community. Part of the reason we gather in missional communities isn't just to be on mission. It's, it's for core. It's for all these different ways that we encourage one another, that we remind each other of the good news of the gospel, that we keep going, that we encourage one another, that we pray for one another, that we strengthen one another. We stir one another up to love and good works, as the scripture tells us. And so Paul knew that they needed each other. And so we see him establishing these new churches. He's planting churches. Paul's not really interested in just making decisions for Christ. Hey, all these people believed. Cool, see you later. And moving on to the next one. Hey, all these, and go back to Antioch and be like, yeah, like 10,000 people came to faith. It was amazing. And they're like, yay, great. And then, well, well now what, what about them though? Like, what are they? I mean, that's just, that's not making disciples. That's making orphans. Congratulations, new birth. See you later. <laughs> what do I do now? He established them in churches. He traces his steps as he comes back through. And what does it say? He, he strengthens the disciples to continue in the faith. This is a, a phrase that uh, kind of gets used uh, as an as a overarching phrase for the apostolic instruction, the gospel, the core message of the faith. He, continue, he encourages them to continue in that body of, of doctrine, of belief that they have been given, this apostolic instruction. He appoints elders. So there's pastoral oversight. There's people who, who can care for people, that can instruct, that can disciple people, who can um, be on watch for false teaching, for wolves that won't creep into the flock and devour them. And he commits them to the Lord. He commits them to the Lord. That's, that's amazing, right? Because... Man, I would just be, no wonder he's anxious about the churches. Like, I get that, and I'm only in charge of one. Like, he's fighting for his life, establishing these things, moving on to the next, doing this. He traces his way back, making sure they have elders, making sure there's right uh, doctrine and teaching that's happening. But he has to entrust them. He has to commit them to the Lord. And he moves on about his task. An incredible uh, encouragement for us. This is the church that's being established. This is the tradition that you and I now find ourselves in even this morning. And so commit um, to a local church. Commit. If this isn't the one, then find the one for you and commit to that one. Um, be a part of a member of our church that we're serving one another, that we're committed to each other, that we're not just uh, going to approach this in a consumeristic individual way that so much of our culture does with everything else. And once they had done these things, they made their way back to their sending church. They made their way back to Antioch. And they, uh, there they reported what was happening. Um, they celebrated uh, all that God had done. 
um, through them, um, that God was in the process of building his church. They had committed them to the Lord. Um, They had accomplished the task that they were sent on. It says they, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This is our story. We, we not once, um, as a leadership team or anything, have ever sat down and tried to come up with some kind of a growth strategy for our church. Not once. How can we get bigger? How can we grow? How can we, it, we just, there just hasn't been that kind of strategy. The, the question is, how do we make disciples of Jesus? And when that happens, those people mature and get excited to make disciples of Jesus. Uh, the, the focus is on how do we have a healthy church, knowing that a healthy church will grow. But a growing church isn't always a healthy church. You can get a Frankenstein-y kind of thing happening um, where it's been kind of manufactured, and God protect us from that, Please. But Jesus promised that he would build his church. And we're thankful for how he's done, done that with us and, and other churches um, in our city. Pray that he would continue to do that even as we, as, uh, as we make plans uh, for a second plant and congregation in South Belfast uh, this year in the autumn. Um, just as an aside to that, be praying for that. Um, so there's a possible venue uh, that we're looking at and trying to acquire. We didn't think we were going to. thought we might have to buy it and all this sorts of stuff. But things have kind of swung back to maybe a more favorable place for us. And so pray that the Lord in his uh, providence and timing um, would allow us to have that. We're hoping to know something uh, in the coming weeks, probably sometime in February. So um, be praying for that. And let's persevere and endure together. When we are tempted to despair, when we are tempted to give up, when we just want to pack it in and say, you know what, functional gods will do. Grace is too easy, I'm going to do it myself. We tend to walk away from these things. We get isolated, we stop coming around church, we stop hanging around with brothers and sisters. All the, all the means of grace that God has given to us to endure and persevere for his name's sake. And so may we be encouraged um, by what we see in Paul and Barnabas, but not just in an, in an inspirational kind of way, oh, I'm really inspired by that, but that we'd be encouraged by how they did that. They were empowered by Jesus. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. The gospel was true in their life, and that's what enabled them to move forward and do these things. Self-manufactured perseverance isn't biblical true perseverance. Perseverance uh, in a biblical Christian way is giving up (laughs) on your own kind of trying to do this better and it's relying on God. It's a stick-to-itiveness, it's a grit, it's a not giving up, but it's a not giving up in, in the power of Jesus. We give up in our own power and take his and not give up in that. Because it never gives up. It never ends. It never fails. It's always available to us. Let me pray.